I have a, a game that I like to play with my daughters uh, in the car. It's the game that is most effective in keeping them from fighting with each other. Uh, it's called Name That Animal. In fact, uh, David Martin gave me an uh, a, uh, entry form to enter a cow calling contest. Uh, I forget where I had to call, but I called someplace and gave them my best cow, and, and they, uh, you know, they let you know whether you win or not. I didn't win anything. It was judged by a bunch of farmers. But uh, anyway, I always ask the girls, you know, I've got a whole repertoire of animals that I do, but I'll just give you my cow. All right, you ready? Thank you, thank you. This one requires a chamber, so, uh, okay. <laughs> they usually get both of them without any trouble. What else? Oh, yeah, my favorite one. My favorite one, and probably Cindy's favorite one, whenever the band would act up back when I was leading it, I would always pull out this one. Uh, this, I'll give you a hint. This is the theme to the show. All right, you got that? All right, so here, here's the guy. Well, Mr. Douglas, I've got a little pickup truck full of potatoes I've got to take down to town. Who is that? Mr. Haney, that's right. Well, I am not a, uh, a professional, obviously, at uh, impressions. There are some people that make their living at, uh, at faking people out, pretending that they're others. Now, some people, I won't mention who, have fallen for Elvis impersonators uh, and really believe that there's still some Elvis around. But there's probably not one of us that hasn't seen uh, an impersonator impersonating someone else. There is another impersonator who is more convincing than any you have ever seen. He incited Ahaz to, or the prophets of King Ahaz in the Bible, to lie to him so that he would go out and battle and be killed. He, he uh, encouraged Ananias to lie. He encouraged Peter to deny. He, uh, probably his greatest hit was encouraging immortal mankind, Adam and Eve, that life after the rebellion would be better than life before it. Thomas Brooks has written a book, this is a Brooks book, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And I want to read just a sentence that he has given us in it. He says, Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. A wise person in a war will study his enemy. Otherwise, you are open uh, for an attack. You are open for defeat. But if you know his strategy, 
you can know how to defend yourself. Much more than that, you can know how to be offensive. So the need for a study on the devil is a big one. Not a popular subject today. A lot of people say, well, I don't even believe in the devil. Trouble is the same Bible that teaches God uh, teaches the devil. The same creation that heralds a creator, there is also evil in it that heralds a devil. So whether it's the national, nas natural revelation or the special revelation of the Bible, both of them herald a devil. Evil that you must contend with. The need for this study is made clear in the scriptures as the Apostle Paul desired, first of all, that no advantage be taken of us by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his schemes, or we ought not be. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I was told by the video store a couple months ago when I knew we were going to do this message that that movie, The Ghost and the Darkness, remember about those two lions that uh, were mauling those railroad bridge constructors? Uh, the video store said that, there was, that it was going to come out Tuesday. And I thought, great, you know, we'll, we'll look at a part of it. Because I saw that movie, if you saw that movie, the, the lions in it were just awesome. But to think about that. But anyway, the, uh, the, uh, it doesn't come out till next Tuesday. So uh, maybe we'll show it next week when we talk about the canon of the Bible. Huh? That will fit for that. No, I'm kidding. But uh, think about a lion prowling around, waiting looking for someone to devour. This is the illustration we're given of the devil. That he is like a lion. So the need of this study is obvious. Who wants to be devoured? Nobody. Satan is what you might call a Judas. He is a, a Benedict Arnold. He is, an, he is one who pretends to be an ally but is really an adversary. In fact, his name, Satan, in Hebrew, Satan, means adversary or enemy. And so we're going to briefly look at him today, where he came from, where he's going, but most importantly, what he is doing and what we can do about it when he tries to attack us in our lives. God did not originally create Satan evil. In fact, he was not, evenly, he's not, was not even created with the name Satan. God would not have made an angel with the name enemy or adversary. This was given to him after he sinned. I think the Bible says that originally his name was Morning Star or Lucifer, which would have been a very high honor for an angel because the Bible in the New Testament attributes that name to Jesus. Not Lucifer, but Morning Star been a very high honor to be named after the Son of God. And the, uh, the, new, I mean, the Old Testament gives us his name in one verse, in the Old King James Version. We'll look at here in a minute. But we're going to look at a couple of passages initially that uh, admittedly are debated whether or not they refer to Satan. I personally believe they do, but I won't take you to the carpet for it. I want us to look at the first of these two what I think is talking about the fall of Satan in Ezekiel 28. Kind of like last week, we're going to be flying through some scripture. If you want to turn there, you can. We'll be there for a few minutes. Ezekiel 28, verse 12. 
Ezekiel has talked about in chapter 27 a condemnation of the city of Tyre, a city called Tyre. And then in the beginning of chapter 28, he does a lament or a condemnation concerning the ruler of Tyre, the physical king there. And then in verse 12, he does a lament concerning the one called the king of Tyre. And I believe this is referring to the devil. Ezekiel says, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. Ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite. Uh, incidentally, chrysolite was what uh, Gabriel was said to, be, said to be made part of when Daniel saw him last week. Onks, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl, all these stones. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. I think this is talking about Satan as he was before he sinned. Notice what, how it describes him. That he was in Eden, the Garden of Eden. That he is described as a guardian cherub or an angel. He is an angel. He was on the Mount of God. The holy mount of God, meaning he was in the very presence of God in heaven. Uh, he was blameless in his ways until wicked, wickedness was found in him. So he was made perfect. He was made blameless from the day he was created. Until wickedness was found. And then this wickedness is described in verse 16. Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. This would then be not only the first sin of Satan, but the first sin, period. Jesus called Satan the father of lies. Satan is the one that introduced sin in the universe. And you might ask, well, how in the world did a holy God that has no sin in him create an angel that would make this decision, make this uh, sinful decision, especially when there was no pressure to sin from outside? There was no influence. This is often, I guess, called the problem of evil. We looked at it briefly, I guess, in Second Peter as well. We went through that. But God created not only the angels, but mankind with uh, a will or with a morality, you might say, a moral will, where mankind and angels for a period of time is tested to see whom they will serve. We know that our testing is here in this brief time we live on earth, some 80, 90 years maybe if, if we're strong. And then that decision made in this time is sealed at death. And that decision we make to either follow the Lord or not follow the Lord determines our destiny forever. The life we live now is very short compared, compared to forever. I think that the Bible also indicates that the angels had a time of testing as well. That for a short time, there was a, uh, 
a period of testing where they would choose whether they would serve the Lord or whether they would not. And in this period of testing, Satan chose to not. You say, well, how could he choose that? Because God wants worship that's real. God wants worship that is chosen. God doesn't make creatures that worship him like robots, that they do it because they have to. He makes them to do it if they want to, just like us. We have a will. We can choose to worship or not to worship. The, the angels, for the time, had the choice of whom they, whom they would forever serve or whether they would not. And during this time, Satan, given the decision, chose to become proud in his heart, Ezekiel says. I think Ezekiel tells us that Satan was cast out from the mount of God, it says, to earth. I think it's the same language Jesus used in Luke 10 where he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I think it's the same language John uses where he describes uh, a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. I think it's the same language Isaiah used when he said in Isaiah 14, how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. Here's that name, morning star. The King James translates it, Lucifer, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, meaning the other angels. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel say that from the mount of God, meaning heaven, this one was cast out and to the earth. Jesus and John say that this one was cast out to the earth from heaven. And why? Ezekiel tells us because the pride in the heart. Paul tells us this as well when he gave the qualifications for a pastor. He said in 1 Timothy that uh, he ought not be a, a new convert lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. The devil's condemnation was conceit, pride. Well, what will be his destiny for this? We have looked at the past now. Now let's look at the future and what will happen to him. Revelation 20 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. This is something we ought to keep in mind in the battle. Something that Paul reminded us in Romans 16, where he said, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's a temporary fight that we have with him. One day, and he knows his end, and we should know it too. <clears throat> One day, Satan will be destroyed. Will be put into the lake of fire forever and forever. And all of those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ will with him. So while the battle is only temporary, it is real. It is a battle that you deal with every single day if you are a Christian, if you have one, one who have trusted that Christ has died for your sins. So in this battle, we want to look at his strategy or his method at overcoming you, at making you fall, at destroying your life. And this is his desire. This would give him glory rather than God, which is his desire doesn't want God to get the glory, doesn't want God to be worshipped. And he will do whatever he can to get you to not worship God. He'll put any, anything in your way. 
His present method is deception. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan blinds. It's like it's a spiritual blinding as real as a physical blindness. You cannot see the truth. An unbeliever who is not a Christian, who has not trusted Christ, the gospel doesn't make sense. Paul says it's foolishness to them. And how does he do this? How does he blind minds? He says in a few chapters later that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He always comes to you with that smiley face on, but behind it is the true him. He comes at you as an ally, but he is really an adversary, an enemy. Webster defines deceit as making someone believe what's not true. Making someone believe what's not true. I am not much of a fisherman, but I am told that a fish will not, uh, a certain fish will not just bite any kind of lure. It takes a special kind of lure, a certain lure for a certain kind of fish. Now, if that fish knew that when he bit on that lure that his life was over, he never would have done it, would he? Never would have done it. So what the fishermen has to do, or the ones that design the lures have to do, is make that thing look enticing. Make it look like it's going to satisfy a need that the fish has, hunger. And it's not until he bites it that he, that he realizes he's made a wrong choice, that he's been deceived. And there are different kinds of lures for different kinds of fish. You wouldn't try to catch a swordfish with a little minnow, would you? You would use a certain kind of lure for a certain kind of fish. And Satan uses the same strategy with you. What works on deceiving me may not work on deceiving Christopher. What works on him might not work with David. We're all different. And Satan knows what lure you'll bite. And if he held out to you a decision, and he said, I want you to know that if you make this decision, it will crater this area of your life. It'll ruin your life. You'd say, I will ne I'd never make that decision if you knew that's what happened. But what does he have to do to get you to bite that hook? He's got to put bait on it, doesn't he? He's got to make it look good. He's got to be the angel of light to where when you go against God's word, you're doing it because you think there's actually a benefit in it. Just like Adam and Eve thought. I'd like for us to look at that. Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there or look at the screen. It is, it is the method that he has used from our first parents. It is what he has used all the way down through history because it works. Deception. It works. In fact, he even tried it with Christ. It didn't work with Christ, but it's worked with everybody else since the first humans. Genesis 3, we'll start uh, there in the first verse, actually about halfway through it, where Satan, the serpent, he is called there, he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. Now, God didn't say, Don't touch it. This is uh, extra on the part of Eve. We tend to do that with God's Word. We tend to throw some extra 
stuff in. But uh, God didn't say that. But to her credit, Eve knew the truth. If she ate it, she would die. She knew that. She knew the truth. That if she ate it, she would die. There's a lot of times in our lives that we know what the Bible says. We know the Bible says, do this and you will prosper. Do this and you will fail. So what Satan has to do is deceive us. He has to lie to us to get us to believe that we won't fail. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now here's where we've got to watch it. You know that the Bible says you eat it and you die. Satan comes along and with a very convincing argument will say, you know, the reason that God said that is because he knows that you'll be like him if you do it. He doesn't want you to be like him. You know, he, he downplays God. He says God has lied to you. God's holding out on you. There really is a benefit to sin. If you, if you will disobey what God says... Just a little bit. Now, don't go too far with it, you know, but just a little bit. Then there's actually a benefit. You will be like God. This was what Eve fell for. Incidentally, I think it's what Satan fell for, too. Back in Isaiah, when he said, I will be like the Most High. It was his desire to be like God that was his undoing. It's the same here with Eve. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And notice how Satan baited the hook. It looked good. It was a delight. It was desirable. He baited it with something that looked good. He didn't tell them the honest truth of what would happen. And it's the same way in each, of, in each of our lives. Whatever it is you're tempted to compromise in, I guarantee you it's going to look good. If it looked bad, you wouldn't do it. But he's going to work it. He's going to work that situation where it looks good and it's delightful and desirable. The devil never is going to make disobedience look bad. It's always going to look good. But it's always a lure with a hook in it. Even Satanists today, Brian did some hunting on the web, some sites, uh, and he got some info that is really interesting about Satanists, at least the high-minded purists who call themselves Satanists. Anton LaVey's Satanic Bible doesn't necessarily teach worshiping the entity we call Satan, or the person, I should say, we call Satan. They view rather Satan as a personification of you doing what you want to do. It is a personification, so to speak, of you being God. It's the ultimate, really, in humanism, that you are your own master, which is so ironic that the, the Satanists would, would say this because this is exactly what he tried to get Eve to do. Be her own God. You will be like God. 
The method that he uses here in deception is a method he has used from day one all the way up to the present. He's used it on you. He's probably succeeded. He's definitely succeeded on me a number of times. Several times, huge ways that I'd give a a limb to go back and, and correct. I want us to compare what Satan did with Eve and that deception to what Satan did with Christ and how Christ stood firm. You don't have to turn to Matthew 4, but we're going to compare both Genesis 3 and Matthew 4 of how Satan baited that hook to try to gratify a desire. The first one he tried to gratify was uh, the physical desire apart from God's will. Now, physical desire is a legitimate need, isn't it? But you try to gratify it apart from God's will. For Eve, she noticed that the fruit was good for food. This is how he baited it. For Christ, he tempted Christ to change the stones to bread. Remember that Jesus was hungry. He had been fasting. Satan came up and said, Hey, if you're the Son of God, change these stones to bread and and meet this need that you have. And Christ knew that if he did that, he would be meeting a need, a legitimate need, but in an illegitimate way. Very often, this is how we will be tempted. I have a need for sex. I have a need for companionship. I have a need for honor. Legitimate needs. But go about them in an illegitimate way. And you're biting a hook for destruction. Now, those ways are never going to look illegitimate. They're always going to look good, desirable. But it's always a deception. Secondly, the the bait was the mind's desires apart from God's will. The mind's desires. For Eve, it was pleasing to the eye, the fruit was. Now, I've messed up here on the... uh, the order of Christ's temptations, it should be, all this I will give you next, and then uh, flip-flop that with the, the angel will catch you. So the, the mind's desires apart from God's will. For Christ, it ought to be, all this I will give you if Satan said that to him. Remember what he did? He took, Satan took Christ to the top, the pinnacle of the temple. No, he, he showed him all the, 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 the kingdoms of the world, which would be Christ's in the future. And Satan says, all this I'll give you if you'll worship me. And what was Christ's response? He said, I'm not going to worship you. You worship the Lord and serve him only. Because Christ knew who you worship. That's who you're also going to serve. The devil will get you to do anything to worship him. By worshiping yourself or by worshiping something else, but anything other than God. This is why I think it's so funny that the Satanists say that they're not worshiping Satan, but they sure aren't worshiping God, because if you're not worshiping God, whatever, it else, what, whatever else it is you're worshiping, ultimately, Satan gets the glory. So Satanists do worship Satan, though they don't know that they are, by worshiping themselves. And Jesus said, uh, worship the Lord God and worship Him only. He quoted Scripture. The third bait that Satan did is try to gratify the the spiritual need, which is a legitimate need that even Christ had. And this is uh, to try to gratify a confidence in yourself independent from God. For Eve, she saw that it was desirable for gaining wisdom. In other words, that she would be like God. She wouldn't need God. She'd be independent. 
Christ was told that the angels will catch you. This is where Satan took him to the top of the temple and said, jump off, the angels will catch you. But Christ knew that that would be trying to put God in a corner, trying to act independent of God's will. And what was his response? He quoted scripture. The response of the person during each of these times. For Eve, she believed the lie, didn't she? And she sinned. For Christ, he believed the word and he stood. And you're going to have plenty of opportunities even this day, today, to believe the lie or to believe God's word. Should I compromise just a little bit in favor of the lie? Are you going to stand strong on what God's word says? I don't care how good this hook looks. What was the response of Satan to their responses? For Eve, it was victory over her. And Romans 5 says that sin entered to all mankind when Adam and Eve sinned. It was a, a mighty blow to all of us when this happened. The response for Christ is that he left him. Christ stood firm on the word of God and Satan left. The question I want to ask you today is think about it. What area are you? What legitimate what, what area do you have a legitimate need? Be it spiritual, be it physical, be it mental or emotional. That you are tempted, just a little bit maybe, to meet that need in an illegitimate way. Whatever it is, I don't care how good it looks, turn and run the other direction. Back to God's word. You say, yeah, but I may lose money on it. Lose money on it, because you'll lose more than that if you keep going in that direction. Say, well, I may lose face. Forget your pride. You'll lose more than that if you go the other direction. The hook is always going to look good. But if it goes contrary to God's word, do what Jesus did and stand with it. And the, and the devil leaves. Kathy gave me a quote that's neat. It says, Satan is subtle. And never more dangerous than when he pretends to be a friend who's only interested in my welfare. The great writer Jonathan Edwards, he wrote, Satan goes on with mankind as he began with them. He prevailed against our first parents, cast them out of paradise, and suddenly brought all their happiness and glory to an end by appearing to be a friend in their happy state and pretending to advance it to higher degrees. Satan is always going to say, man, if you sin, things will be better for you. But it's a deception. Things will actually be worse. So he'll never tell us the consequences, but they're always there. So we're given a warning. Paul said in Ephesians 4, do not give the devil an opportunity. James said in chapter 4, submit therefore to God Resist the devil and he will flee from you, just like he did from the Lord Jesus. How do we resist the devil? How do we do this? We looked at briefly last week what we're going to spend just a few more minutes on today. And that is the, the weapons that the believer has. And I stress again to you, it is the weapons of a believer. If you are not a Christian... And what I mean by that, I don't mean somebody who goes to church, somebody who lives right, somebody who gives money, somebody who prays, somebody who does, does, does. A Christian is someone who believes. 
It is a matter of faith that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. And that by faith in him, you have forgiveness. That is a Christian, pure and simple, apart from any kind of works. If you are a Christian, then you have access to this armor. If you're not a Christian, you don't have access to the armor. In fact, you're not even on the, the side, not even on God's team. You're under the domain of the devil. He's not fighting you. He doesn't need to. You're on his side. But I'd like for us to look at the weapons that a believer has and that you may have, if you're not a Christian, by faith in Christ, by simply believing that he died for you, for your sins. Paul mentions these in Ephesians chapter 6. Again, just look at the screen at the believer's weapons called the armor of God. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. The emphasis is not on what you can do by yourself, but we are told to be strong in the Lord, to, be, to put on, uh, the, and in the strength of His might, to put on the armor of God, not your own. It's God's armor that you put on, not your own. You are out of your element when you are trying to battle these forces that Paul listed. It's a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. It's not going up and, and fighting another human where you stand a fighting chance. You're fighting things, you're fighting beings that are much more powerful than you are. How are you to do it? Not on your own. I heard it described one time as like swimming with a, a great white shark. You're out of your element. You're lucky to just keep your head above the water. And at any moment... Whenever he chooses, he can pull you under in your history. That's what it's like to go up against the devil by yourself. But to stand firm with the armor of God, you're not only standing firm, but standing victorious. Paul describes this armor, and I think it's kind of neat. When Paul wrote this, he was, he was chained to a Roman soldier. So he probably had a good bit of it there to look at while he was writing. But he describes this, starting in verse 14, what we are to put on. He says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. To gird the loins was to take the skirt or the dress and to pull it up and stick it in your belt so that you can run. Or a soldier would do it, particularly here a Roman soldier would do it, fasten his belt so that he could move more freely to fight. And that this belt is called truth says that in our lives we need to have truth. And this is not just knowing it, this is living it. To have integrity, to have truthfulness. And you know how, how hard it is once you've lied to cover that lie. But if you're truth, you are freer. Not only in your, in your relationships, but in the spiritual life. You are freer to fight. The breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate would go over the Obviously, the breast, it would cover the vital organs, particularly the heart. You wouldn't want a sword getting there. 
And as you attempt to live a righteous life in the power that God gives you, you are continually examining your vitals, so to speak, your spiritual vitals, your heart. And any time the enemy tries to plant a seed in your heart, you continually are examining yourself. The righteous life that you try to live is like a breastplate over your heart. It keeps those, those thoughts and those inclinations out. Verse 15, he says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now remember, we are standing. His illustration is standing. You're not taking the gospel. So I don't think he's talking about sharing Christ here. I think he's talking about the preparation that the gospel or the good news about Christ has made for you in, a, in the spiritual fight. And what preparation is that? Peace. You can have peace. That is, you know, no matter what Satan says, no matter what thoughts come into your mind of how unworthy you are, of how you ought not have done this, of how you're not worthy of the love of God, and God's probably going to toss you out, that you can have peace because you know, because the gospel says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be forgiven. And that gives peace, even in a spiritual battle, that the devil cannot take away. Verse 16, he says, In addition to all, to all take up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, meaning the arrows flaming arrows that he would shoot. A Roman soldier's shield is not like that little one we saw Christopher had a couple of weeks ago, but uh, it was two and a half feet wide, about this wide, about four feet tall, and if, a, and if a Roman would squat down, or if he was running, it would essentially cover all of him. Not only cover the parts that were exposed, but it would cover the other armor, armor as well. And this kind of faith that he's talking about here is similar to what he talked about in the, the sister letter to Ephesians, that is Colossians, where he said, just as you have received Jesus Christ as Lord by faith, so walk in him. It's talking about the daily relationship of faith, of trusting, that I don't care what anybody else says, they try to tempt me, lure me off to do anything else, I'm going to have faith that what God's word says is true. And no matter what kind of arrows that the enemy shoots at you, that shield is the trust, the faith that you have that what the Bible says is true. And those arrows are snuffed out like that. The flaming arrows are snuffed out. Verse 17 says to, to put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The helmet was only worn during battle because it was hot, it was heavy. But you'd want it in the battle because all it would take is one sword to the head and it would kill you. One sword swipe to the head. But if you had a helmet, you'd get hit a hundred times with a sword and it wouldn't kill you. In the spiritual life, there is no death blow to a Christian because of their salvation. It's like a helmet. The salvation is secure. It cannot be taken away. It can never be lost. It's a helmet that will never fall off. And when Satan tries to make you think you've lost it, or even in the accusation before God himself, uh, try to make you lose it, you can't do it. You've got a helmet on that protects you from that. This is all our defense. So far, all of this armor is what's the defense. The only offensive weapon we have 
is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And this word in the original Greek language, the word for word, is the spoken word. It's not simply the Bible, but it is the Bible spoken. It is the Bible quoted. Who does this sound like? In what temptation was the Bible quoted? By Jesus, wasn't it? Jesus' offense to every single one of the things that the devil said was to quote Scripture. Now that implies a little study beforehand, doesn't it? If you want any kind of offense against the devil, then you need to know your weakness and you need to know a verse that you can quote when you are tempted in that area. That is your offense against him. Finally, Paul says in verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. We pray at all times in the Spirit, meaning we're relying on Him. Again, we're out of our element when we're dealing with a spiritual battle. We must rely on Him. And notice it says, don't just pray for yourself, but pray for all the saints. I was speaking with a couple earlier this morning that asked me how my week went. Remember, I asked you last week, to pray that this week would go well. Because Satan doesn't generally like us exposing his methods. And I told them it went great. Because, and they, they had said they had prayed for me. They were applying this. Spiritual battle is not just yours. It's everybody's. Pray for all of them. When you have a need, and you will have one, the solution is going to look delightful. It's going to look desirable. It's going to look good. But it's going to be wrong. And if it is wrong, you're about to bite a hook that'll, that'll put you in the frying pan, so to speak. Paul asked, and I want you to seriously consider this verse today. He said, I am afraid, lest the, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Are you going to be led astray? When you know that the Bible says something, are you going to be led astray by a fine-sounding argument? Stand firm, just like the Lord Jesus did, with that sword in hand, ready to speak God's word at the point of temptation. And we are told... Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. I mentioned earlier this uh, book by Brooks, the Brooks book. We've given it to you there in your uh, bulletin, some uh, little bibliography there, squeezed in. It's called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Just about any kind of way you can think that Satan would bother you, this talks about it, and it talks about what you can do. It's very good, very good book. Also, another one is called Your Adversary, the Devil, by J. Dwight Pentecost. Both of these are in print and available for you to get. I would recommend them uh, because certainly I do not expect that all of what we're going to deal with we have dealt with today. But my friends, you're going to deal with this. You're going to deal with it. Be prepared. Let's pray together. 
Lord, I believe there are some who are here today who do not know Jesus Christ, who are not in a battle with the enemy because they're on the enemy's side. Perhaps uh, they don't know it, but certainly they are. I pray for your Holy Spirit to touch them and show them their need for forgiveness, lest they end up with the same condemnation as the devil. I pray that they might trust in Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who by your grace have and who daily struggle against our adversary and against all the powers that are under his command, I pray that you'd help us to remember that we do not have to take it, that we can stand victorious because of your armor, because of all that you have provided. And may we steadily be sharpening that sword by regular time in the scriptures, that we may not just know it, but be able to quote it at the time of need, just like Jesus did. Protect us today, I pray, from our adversary and give us wisdom against his schemes. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you all.